0: Hello and welcome everybody to the Keep or Cut podcast. This is episode 17. I'm Chad Young, joined as always by Pete Ball. We are here today to talk pitching. I feel like we talk pitching a lot. There's good reason for that. First of all, it is half of the game we play anyways, but it's also... In many ways the more challenging more difficult more scary terrifying frustrating half of the game uh there's a lot more adjectives i could use there some of which are not appropriate for air so we're going to skip them but there's a lot to talk about what we really want to talk about today what we really like to to focus on i think is young starting pitching young starting pitching can be so so crucial in these leagues don't you think pete it
1: is it is it's very volatile it's hard to find but when you find the right young starting pitcher for your long-term league you are really setting yourself up nicely
0: yeah and i think it's the big thing is you know when we're talking keeper leagues when we're talking out of new age really matters and it's something that i think it's overvalued in redraft right people get super excited about logan gilbert coming up about alec manoa coming up and they spend a ton of fab dollars on them uh, I'm guilty of this. I spent a ton of fab dollars in TGFBI and Alec Manoa, mostly because I needed pitching. And there's just TGFBI, and those are 15 team leagues with 30-man rosters and no trades. And so there's not a lot of depth available. And you, know, you spend where you got to. But the reality is that like whether your starting pitcher in a redraft league is 23 or 43 doesn't matter. <laughs> what matters are the numbers. And in keeper leagues and in auto new leagues, you still can overvalue youth. People still sometimes do. But when you're talking about the possibility of having a Manoa or a Gilbert or even someone like Nate Pearson, who's struggling right now, you're talking about having them for years. Where, whereas compared to like a Scherzer, you don't know how long it's going to be before he starts to fall off. Hasn't happened yet, I guess. It looked last year like he might be starting to slip and not maybe not anymore. <laughs> so,
1: But that but that ability to build for the future just may, makes such a big difference. It does. And... I mean, it's, but again, this speaks to the volatility of it. So you brought up, you know, spending all that money on Manoa this year. Well, last year, if you spent all that money on Ian Anderson or Tony Gonsolin, like it worked out great. So even though they were a young prospect, it worked out great. But if that was a keeper format, it hasn't been as great this year with those particular players, which I think, again, you're going to hear me say this word a lot today, folks. It's, it's volatile. It is all over the place. It's your, you're, it's such a fitting topic for our podcast, Chad, because we we use the term the long haul all the time. And you've got to be willing to, if you invest in a young starting pitcher, say, I'm investing for the long haul. I'm not going to add Alec Manoa because he dominated the Yankees and then drop him because he got blown up by, I can't even remember who it was. It was the Marlins.
0: <laughs> not not an exciting of team teams, to get blown yes, up by. I mean, you, you look at these, these two lines from him. Against the Yankees, he threw six innings with seven strikeouts, two walks, two hits, no runs. He had a 1.80 FIP in that game. In his second start against Miami, he went about half as long. He threw three in the third innings. He had five strikeouts, which that that piece looks good, uh, but walked three over three and a third. He only gave up four hits. Three of them were home runs. <laughs> that's that's not going to go well for you. Uh And what's really interesting is his first game, one of the few things about his first start that I didn't love was he had a 30.8 ground ball percentage, which is a little low, right? You want pitchers keeping the ball on the ground, especially like, man, giving up, having only that that small a number of ground balls at Yankee Stadium is not not something that I would usually feel good about, but it worked for him. He came back against Miami and he had a 44.4% ground ball rate. He only gave up four fly balls, four fly balls the whole game. Three of them were home runs.
1: Right, and and how much of that when we look at two starts and we're looking at ground ball, right? How much of that is just like the team's approach to the pitcher that day based on the film? Like, all right, here's what we're trying to do. Um, all of that could factor into that, which again, underscores the idea that you've got to be patient. You've got to be patient. Those of us that were patient with Tarek Skubal, and I, I really want to hear you talk about that piece at some point today, Chad. We're reaping the benefits now, baby. Uh, what was that, 11 strikeouts yesterday? He was Damn. on fire. That was I watched the last inning of his outing, which I think was just the fifth inning because he got his pitch count up really high. And he was he was still throwing like 97 mile an hour. He was coming right at Jose Abreu. He was going right at that awesome lineup, which by the way, mashes lefties. Now, I don't mean to go on some rant about Skubal, right? But if you, you got to be patient with these young starting pitchers. That's, that's my point.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. We will talk more about Skubal later before we get deeper into young starting pitching because there's a lot to talk about here. Uh, let's talk a little current events. So just in the last 24 hours, baseball, Major League Baseball, baseball, the, the entity, has basically come down and said, all right, the sticky stuff has to go, and they're going to do something about it. There, there is a report that came out late yesterday that starting as soon as June 14th or around June 14th, something like that, they're going to be doing eight to 10 random checks of pitchers per game they're going to do them as innings are ending or as pitchers are coming out so that it's not, this isn't a like, you know, middle of the inning, let's take a little break and see if the pitcher's got any pine tar. This is a, while we're a commercial and nothing else is going on anyways, let's see what's up. This is their attempt to to get rid of the grip enhancers. So there's a lot to unpack here. I think the place to start is for people who are unclear why this matters. Pete, do you want to talk a little bit about why baseball is trying to crack down on this or why they yeah. should
1: sure so first i think it's coming from theo epstein who who took a new position with major league baseball and this is conjecture on my end but i've read a few things that would suggest it was him That's basically trying to get more balls in play um and obviously we know strikeouts are up across the league and a lot of that does well according to again who you read a lot of that has to do with foreign substances used by pitchers now there's two different things that pit, some the pitchers around the league are doing the first one is something that from what I've heard hitters don't have a problem with that's pitchers trying to get a better grip on the ball. And look, I'm sorry. If there's a, if there's a guy who's Alec Manoa sized on the mound, throwing 99 miles an hour in my direction (laughs) meant to be like one foot in front of me. Well, yes, please, please make sure that man has a good grip on the baseball. But then there are others who are using certain substances, not your, you know, Giovanni Gallegos sunscreen mixture with whatever else it was, but are using substances that are meant to increase RPM that are meant to give more break on on pitches and basically make it almost impossible for hitters I mean you definitely don't need me to tell you that it is difficult to hit in Major League Baseball but now you add in these professional pitchers who are already have amazing stuff and now they're using stuff to make the ball like a wiffle ball that's what Major League Baseball is trying to crack down on and that's why it's so serious I mean strikeout rates are are, continue to climb and on one end, yes, that has to do with the approach of hitters. That has to do with launch angle. That has to do with selling out for home runs and analytics. Sure, but it also has a lot to do with the stuff the pitchers are using. Yeah, and I think that there's a long history of
0: foreign substances on baseballs in Major League Baseball. And if you you go back, right, Major League Baseball outlawed the spitball years ago. The idea of the spitball was you would put something on the ball that would change the aerodynamics of the baseball. Basically, it would change how it flies through the air. And there is you know, there there is a there's some some wonderful stories out there about pitchers and I think it was I think it was Gaylord Perry who used to keep Vaseline on his fly because he thought if an umpire checked him, that was once <laughs> they weren't checking, which is just hilarious. Um, That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. It's like there's there's all these great stories and it's part of the like I feel like it's almost part of like the mystique of baseball and the the like narrative history of baseball is the spitball but the spitball was outlawed it was all about you know doctoring the ball in a way that would change the flight pattern of the ball the sticky (laughs) stuff is a totally different thing where it's been used for years as a grip enhancer and like you were saying i think for a long time pitchers were just saying like i don't want the ball to slip out of my hand if i'm trying to throw to a certain spot i want to make sure i've got the grip to throw it to that spot and for the most part from what i can tell hitters were like yeah, please. Like that's that's better than the alternative. So, fine. In the past few years, I think there there been there's been a a, a change in two things. The first and the the thing that preceded all this, I think, is the ability to measure the spin on a ball. Right. All of a sudden, we have all these cameras and systems and stuff that can tell you how how a ball is spinning. And the second which is sort of a natural outcropping of that is realizing that the spin on the ball matters a lot i think we always knew that but i think we knew it in the way that you know i don't know. we knew it in the way that we knew that hitting line drives was important before we started to be able to measure the impact of hitting line drives right like all of a sudden you could say yeah yeah the spin was important but now we can say like when you increase your rpm by x percent it does this to the effectiveness of a pitch you add that with the fact that pitchers have been going out of their way to find ways to like develop new pitches and work on their grips and all this stuff. And you start to put things together, which is you realize that first you realize that we can measure spin rate. Then you realize that spin rate is a really useful metric in determining the effectiveness of a pitch. And the natural next step of that is pitchers saying, well, how can I increase my spin rate? Right. And you had years of you know Trevor Bauer talks about how he spent years literally years trying to figure out how to increase spin rate on his pitches and the only thing he could find that did it was using sticky stuff and he originally was like a whistleblower right he came out and was like here's pitchers whose spin rates have jumped and i can tell you there's only one way you can do this and so maybe we should And be then he did this. it. <laughs> and then he did it. There was a, there was very much you know he did it the first time he did it when he was still with Cleveland he had been making all this noise about it everybody had been sort of ignoring him and he went out for one inning and used something. I don't know what. He never said, like he, but he clear, like he went out for one inning, was super dominant. And after the game, when you looked at his spin rates, it's like his career spin rates were like, you know, at a level point, all along, all along, jump up for one inning and then dropped right back down. He clearly like went in, did something and then washed his hands and was like, this isn't me. And when baseball kept ignoring it, I think he finally had a point where he was like, screw it. <laughs> i'm not letting everyone else get this advantage there's a story about barry bonds that I, I have no idea if this is true or not but about him complaining that mcguire and sosa and some of these guys were getting accolades that he deserved because they were cheating and, it, and he finally hit a point where he was like forget it like sure. i'm not letting them cheat and i'm not going to and i think bauer hit that same point and so he was like if baseball's letting this happen they're letting it happen um but as you start to piece all this together and realize that like spin we can measure spin rate spin rate matters grip enhancers they they moved from this i want to make sure i have the right grip to throw the ball where it's going to like oh it turns out that i can actually make my pitches better with this stuff and so then people started using it more and started using it in different ways right they it's went it went away from let me just use a little bit to just sort of get my hands a little tacky to like let me use a lot in order to really control this and 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 break off a curve like i couldn't before Mm -hmm. And so now baseball wants to crack down on it. And for all the reasons you mentioned, right, it's made, like it's hard enough to hit anyways. And this is just going to make it worse. And now I'm I'm sort of curious, like, it seems to me that what they want to do is get back to where they were a few years ago, which is if you need to use a little sticky stuff to make sure you don't, you know, throw 99 at a dude's head, that's fine. But I don't know how you balance that. If you're checking for substances, you're checking for substances.
1: Yeah, uh, the only thing I could think of is there's some sort of conversation between the league and the umpires about like what what we are looking for. Like if you find that and that that makes it no pun intended, a sticky situation, because all it takes now is the umpires look at John Means glove. And they see it's just sunscreen and and whatever else might be allowed. I can't I, why can't I think of the other thing? Something that's combined with sunscreen to give grip to baseball. Rosin, thank you. So it's it's just rosin and sunscreen, which maybe Major League Baseball's like, let them use that, but all of a sudden maybe the other manager comes out and says, Hold on, there's something there, or people on TV like they actually saw with John Means, see his finger sticking to his glove. And and that's gonna still cause a lot of a lot of conspiracy and and, and issues with the sport. So it is a slippery slope where this could backfire. I could absolutely see that where all of a sudden pitchers go from, you know, I'm going to do a stat dump in a little bit about why, why I think pitching is up at the moment. And we're going to see that go in the polar opposite direction. I mean, you brought up a few years ago, a few years ago, like we're talking 2018, 2017, if that's, if that's where we're going, I mean, hitting was out of control those years. So if we, if that is where they want to go back to, Then I think cracking down on any of these substances, especially the grip enhancers, will do as such.
0: Well of course the other factor that's brought offense down the last last year at least, the last few months at least, is the new ball. Right. Right. And so like that I I assume isn't going away. Although, you know, if you remember, I think it was twenty seventeen that at the all star break offense increased dramatically and there were a bunch of there's a bunch of research. I don't think baseball ever said anything officially, but there's a bunch of research that suggested they changed the ball and started using a different ball for the second half of the season, and then it led to that huge homer jump, and then now we're going back the other way. So if that's true, then maybe they will change the ball midseason because maybe they have in the past. But I, yeah, I mean, it seems like they're they're trying to like trial and error their way into the offensive environment they want.
1: Which, honestly, I I guess I'm okay with. It just makes fantasy a nightmare because it's so... It's so unpredictable. I mean, yes, pitching itself is unpredictable. It's volatile, like I said, and there's that word again. I'm going to continue to say it. But I mean, trying to predict the baseballs is just is just a useless activity. But I I also think that we're we might be overreacting to this improvement in league wide pitching for a multitude of reasons. I mean, first of all, last year was so weird. So if in ramping up for the season, pitchers are ahead of hitters. Then, and which is usually the case, then that explains at least a little bit of it. Another part of it is it hasn't completely heated up yet. I mean, it's in the '90s here in Boston, so I mean, it's it's now starting to heat up. But as the summer begins to roll on, um, I think we're like like usual going to see an increase in hitting. I also think part of it has been a little bit of luck. I know that the that, so I listen to fantasy baseball today, like I bring up all the time, like a commercial for them, um, but they've been focusing largely on BABIP which league-wide BABIP, which in April was 283. In 2020, that was 292. And your initial reaction might be like, all right, so nine percentage points. That's league-wide. That's massive. That is a a massive difference. Right. And in May, that went back up to 292. Here in June, it's at 290. So I think things are beginning to level off a little bit. I tried to look at like, Strand rate and home run per fly ball here in June in this very small sample home run per fly ball rate is up. I don't know how much stock to put into that, but every month so far this season, April, May and June. So a small sample, but that's what we're dealing with. Batting average has gone up every month on base percentage has gone up every month. Actually, it's it's four percentage points down right now. But again, tiny sample strikeout rate um, has gone down which is odd but that is also but walk rate has also gone down so i think we're beginning to see pitching make a little bit of a comeback and as pitchers continue to get injured um some by freak incidents like Kikuchi last night unfortunately but others just because last year was weird and now the their their bodies are out of sync and some guys are going to get start getting rested for you know fatigue and dead arm like John Means experienced yesterday just to make sure their innings don't see too much of a leap this year as we continue to see that I think hitting is going to continue to come back. So I don't want to overreact to the fact that I personally went pitch. I certainly went pitcher heavy this year. I mean, definitely in our pitcherless staff league, I went, I went pitcher heavy, but I, I don't want, I'm not ready to say that that was a failure. Talk a little bit about that draft strategy. What, I mean, you, you did that. You and I were in
0: three drafts together. We we were in the Pitcherless Staff League. We were in a Pitcherless Community League, and then we are co-managing a team in the PitcherList Podcast Network League. A team that is not doing very well, actually.
1: Although this oh, week, it is now. It is now. Yeah,
0: yeah. We're on our second straight good week, so maybe we're gonna maybe we're starting our climb back into the, the playoff picture there. But uh, all three of those, I was a tempering influence on you in the in the <laughs> the one we co-manage, and so we went a little bit less. Pitching heavy there, but all three of those, I saw you go very pitching heavy. It seems to be what you always do. How does that tie into this conversation we're about to have about young starting pitching?
1: I find here's the word again: young starting pitching even more volatile than than veteran starting pitching. Right now, it was I. It really stood out to me at the beginning of the year uh, during draft season when you were like, "There's one safe starting pitcher." Not like I said there was three, and you're like, "There's one." I was like, you know what? I kind of see where Chad's coming from because, and, and obviously, look, Garrett Cole has been has been tremendous. But bottom line, like pitching is so volatile that it's it's hard to predict. So my strategy all along was get as many guys who I think are are mo- more likely to be reliable than not in the staff league. That was definitely my strategy. And look, it's I'm I'm I think I'm going to bring myself to 500 this week. I'm up nine one, and my rotation has completely hit. When you look at it, like Ian Anderson, Trevor Bauer, Jacob Degrom, Corbin Burns, Trevor Rogers, my bullpen, Josh Hader, Mark Melanson, I still, I even got like Rich Hill. It's it's loaded, but it's also had to deal with injuries, right? Degrom spent time on the IL, Corbin Burns spent time on the on the COVID list, and I was able to absorb those injuries because of my depth at starting pitching. And I just thought I would be, I can deal with losing hitters. Like I'll be able to cope with that. Have better. Than trying to rely on free agency to cope with losing starting pitchers. And that was kind of my mindset all along. So where does young starting pitching fill into it? Well, I'm going for veterans up top. I'm not going to take a lot of risks there. Um, that's that's where, you know, I'm taking I'm, I'm looking at getting those two aces in, in either the first three or four rounds. But later, those higher upside starting pitchers, I'm more likely to invest in them than other owners because I can like I don't I don't have to take the safe Aaron Savale Um, or I don't know why he's the only one that's coming to mind. Maybe John means no one really saw this. Well, I shouldn't say no one saw this breakout coming, but I think most people before the season viewed him as like, okay, he could be a safe, like mid threes ERA type guy. I'll take him. Whereas I was more likely to invest in maybe Trevor Rogers, um, or somebody like that because I had that upper crust available so I could invest in the young starting pitching. I just don't think it's smart where if your investment in young starting pitching is your entire rotation. I do think you're kind of setting yourself up to be a disaster. I referenced the ESPN play raider last episode right now out of the top 20. So I'm looking at a very small group. This is a very elite small group out of the top 20 starting pitchers on the ESPN play raider. Only five of them are under 27 years old. And one of them is Shohei Otani. And that really doesn't count because if we were just rating his pitching, he would not be a top 20 starter to this point. As good as he's been, he wouldn't fit into that top 20. So long story short, Young pitching is, in my opinion, too, too volatile, too unpredictable to make heavy investment in even in longer term leagues. I mean, the leagues we've been referencing, those are those are redraft leagues. But even in those longer term leagues, it's it's too much of a risky investment to really build your entire rotation around. Yeah, I
0: think the entire rotation, you're right. I think that the big difference in auto new leagues and in keeper leagues is the upside of hitting on those young pitchers is so much higher. Right. Older pitchers. Yes, you do get, you know, Scherzer's getting up there and still pitching well. And Verlander seems like you might be able to pitch basically forever, uh, even after this this latest surgery. I
1: so hope like, so. You, you,
0: yeah. I mean, you, you definitely get you definitely get pitchers who last a good long time, but you also get pitchers who get hurt and lose effectiveness. Right. You also have the Madison Bumgarners of the world who. It all seems to fall apart rather suddenly. And so with those older pitchers, you're running a lot of risk and you can't necessarily count on them for the long term. And in you know, in a redraft, the strategy you're talking about of like, go get aces early so that you can invest in upside later. In keeper leagues, in auto new leagues, that shifts to... Have a rotation built before you show up to your draft that it gives you a solid baseline so that in your auction or in your draft, you can invest in upside, right? It, it's still the same goal of being able to invest in that upside because that's where you can, you know, that's, that's one of the big places you win leagues is by having your upside break out and, and provide the value you hoped they could. In auto new leagues, if you can show up to the draft and have a pair of aces already on your roster, then you don't have to go spend on them. and You don't have to save the money for them. You, don't, you know, It just changes everything, and it gives you a little bit of baseline. The challenge with any of these strategies, and you're talking about pitching volatile, uh, in in one of my Auto New Leagues, a uh, team I co-manage with Niv Shah, who is the the man behind Auto New, we went into the season with a very intentional strategy to play upside on starting pitching. We have an inexpensive, a $13 Hyunjin Ryu and a seven dollar Zach Gallen. Those guys were the anchors of our rotation. In the auction, we also added a fifteen dollar Zach Plesac to sort of, you know, be a solid number three. I don't think we expected him to be an ace, but we thought he could he could slot in there. And Jose Arcidi, who we really liked to just be guy who gets you plenty of innings and sits in the middle of that rotation, right? So, but the rotation was built around the upside of Domingo Herman. Tarek Skuball, Tristan McKenzie, Nate Pearson, Davey Garcia, Sixto Sanchez, Tony Gonsolin. In season, we picked up Danny Duffy, and none of that's worked out. Like, you know, Skubal's starting to turn around now. McKenzie, his last start had those like eight or nine strikeouts in a row. Like, there's there are some good signs there. But we came in thinking, all right, if if Gallon Ryu and Pleissack are Gallon Ryu and Pleissack, and then three of those other upside guys pan out, will be set. And instead, Gallon's barely pitched. Ryu had looked great until his last couple starts, and his overall line is is good, but not as good as we hoped it would be. Plesak's been bad, and now is hurt. And those young pitchers I mentioned, not one of them has really been that good. Um, like I said, Scooball's been good lately, but there isn't one of those pitchers that I look at and think like, yep, that was what we were hoping for out of him.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it again, I'm going to use the word again. We are now keep or cut or volatile and, and and it's volatile. And especially when one of those upper end guys doesn't come through, that's when it gets really difficult. And so going to drafts. And again, this is a different approach because Chad obviously referencing a new and, and we're talking long-term and the leagues I'm referencing were redraft, but I was looking to get like four to five top 40 pitchers with the understanding that two, maybe even three don't pan out because in, in, those later investments in young starting pitchers, if you got to rely on them, it, it might not work out.
0: Yeah, it's almost unavoidable that some of them aren't. And I think, you know, my my co-manager in that league, Niv, and in, in another league where we compete with each other last year used a very similar strategy where he had a couple guys up top and then said, I've got six or seven upside players and hopefully half of them will pan out. And they all did. And he ran away with the league. Because when all of your upside plays out. But there is this advantage to, you know, the advantage that we have now in that team, as bad as our pitching's been, we can look forward to next year and we still have half a season left this year. I don't think we're going to be able to turn around and win that league. I don't think we're even going to be close, but we can look forward to next year and I still think Ryu is going to be fine. Gallon should be healthy for next season. Now, Scooball is emerging, and maybe he becomes sort of a third key cog there. And then we get the second half of the season to see: Does Tristan McKenzie break out? Does Nate Pearson break out? Does Davy Garcia break out? Does Tanner Houck break out? Does Tony Gonzalez yes. come back healthy? Right. And again, if if a bunch of those guys, half of those guys, three of those guys step up and and perform the way that we hope they can, then we go into next season with Ryu and Gallen and let's call it. Scooball, Gonsolin, and Pearson. Let's say those are the three. In the meantime, we've also made a couple of trades. We traded for Jack Flaherty, and we traded for Ian Anderson. So now there's a rotation being built there that we can feel really good about going into next year's draft, so that next year we don't have this problem. And, and I think that was sort of our, you know, that's that's the fallback plan of this vision, right? The fallback plan is Plan A is our star, Our our top two guys stay healthy half of our other guys break out early and we've got a good rotation for the entire 2021 season. The backup plan is we still have a lot of upside for the
1: future. And, and that's, that's the beauty of keeper leagues, right? I mean, you can, you can invest in the young starting pitching and it not work out year one. And then it works out tremendously year two or three. You know, I want to add that like Zach Allen is a part of that young starting pitching group, by the way, at just 25 years old. I mean, I, that's a, that's a pretty awesome young core. And I definitely didn't want to give the impression that, investing in starting pitching is young starting pitching is not a good move obviously in keeper and dynasty formats you want to do that it's just the need to have them actually perform Chad, i look at my new team in our league and and don't worry folks this isn't like a this isn't like a draft or auction episode here in mid-june every player you're about to hear except for aj puck has been added to my roster during the season. Actually, that's not true. Chris Bubich I got in the draft. But anyway, this is this is my young starting pitching core in that odd new league team. That is clearly a rebuild team, and that's Jesus Lazardo, Garrett Crochet, Chris Bubich, Logan Gilbert, AJ Puck, Daniel Lynch, Nick Lodolo or Lodolo Lodolo Lodolo. Let's go with that, and Edward Cabrera. Now. I have those, all those awesome names or potentially awesome names, I should say, for a total of $32. So I'm looking at that as I'm averaging $4 per player, and if even just two or three of those guys break out, okay, well, now I can build a I can build a rotation. It's just about throwing enough darts so you're setting yourself up at this volatile position that you have a pretty good chance at a few of them hitting, and going forward, you're going to be all set. And I think with a the, with the rotation that has gallon and flarity, you're going to be... You're going to be good no matter what happens.
0: You know, I certainly hope so, but, but we'll see. But I think that the, the other thing that this leads to, and that, that team is sort of a nice play into this, is with young pitching, and it's true for hitting too. Development isn't linear. Guys don't just, you know, they get good in AAA and then they show up and have a bad start and a little bit better and a little bit better and a little bit like it's like that's not the path forward. And so you have to be patient with these young guys. You have to be willing to take your time and, and see what happens. And, you know, you mentioned at the beginning that, I, that the piece that I wrote about Tarek Skubal. So over at my, my most recent piece, it's about a week old now, but my most recent piece over at Pitcher List is on Tarek Skubal. And I wrote it coming out of a start he had against Cleveland. So as, as, as our longtime listeners will know, people who have been with us from the beginning, I'm a big Cleveland fan. And so I, I watch almost every Cleveland game. And so I watched Skubal pitch and I was impressed. And what, what stood out to me was he was throwing a curveball that had, he wasn't throwing it often, but when he did throw it, it was freezing hitters. It was throwing them off. And I was like, I want to dive more into this. And what's happened with Skubal over the last year is he came up, he's got this super interesting, great fastball that, that is is his bread and butter, and has continued to be his bread and butter. And he needed his secondaries to play up, and they weren't. And it showed up in the numbers, right? I mean, like anybody who drafted Scoobol or picked up Scoobol last year or drafted him this year has felt the pain of what was happening with those secondaries. Uh, he went out in the offseason and tried to develop, went to driveline uh, and developed a splitter. Splitter was supposed to be his new his new off speed pitch. It was going to help him. Set up the secondaries better. I don't know exactly what it was intended to do. Whatever it was intended to do, it wasn't doing it. And he went through the month of April with terrible numbers. The splitter wasn't really working. His fastball velocity was down. His manager and pitching coach basically said, "Like, drop this new pitch. Just go back to what you're doing. Like, let's try to get you get your fastball right. Because your fastball is not right. The rest of this doesn't matter." He dropped it. He went back to his changeup, but he didn't go back to the same changeup. He, you know, I don't know exactly what he changed, but if you go look at that article, you can see some charts that show pretty clearly he went to a changeup that has a lot more drop than his previous one and is slower than his previous one. And so it it's it drops more like the splitter, but at a lower velocity. And at the same time he went back to that, he got his fastball velocity back. And so he drastically increased the separation almost overnight between his fastball and his primary off speed pitch. Then you go look at his other secondaries, and his curveball is breaking more this year than it did last year, and differently. It has more horizontal movement than it did before. Um, and his slider, which he like which, which is his number one breaking pitch to use, is a pretty vertical slider. And so adding some horizontal movement to his change or to his curveball separates it from his slider more. And all of a sudden now he's throwing his fastball, his slider, his change, and his curve he's a like I think yesterday he was mixing in sinkers as well so he's got four or five pitches and they all move in different ways and so they move in different ways the the velocity on them is really different but this didn't happen for him overnight and it wasn't like he added one and it got a little bit better and he added one and it got a little better and added, like he was bad 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 and then overnight has has found the right mix now to us it looks like overnight Right. Because we look and it's like April, he was bad since the calendar flipped to May. He's been great. When I wrote the article, he was coming up against starts against the Yankees and the White Sox. And my conclusion was basically like the future is bright, but like, let's maybe pump the brakes to see what happens in these next couple starts. And he's been dominant. He absolutely shut down those offenses. Super, super impressive work. Uh, I'm not pumping the brakes anymore. Now, I'm sure for him, this hasn't been overnight, right? He he developed a new pitch in the offseason. He ditched that. He's obviously made changes to his curve and his changeup. I don't know exactly what they are, but he's clearly done something. He has been working his ass off to get this done. He's been working his butt off, we'll say, to get this done. <laughs> you can edit that out later. Uh, oh, no, but- that's staying. <laughs> Well, I apologize to any of our sensitive listeners. I hope that's <laughs> that's not too much too much language. But but clearly it wasn't actually overnight, right? He's he's been working for this and he's earned it. And it's it's super exciting to see it happening. But if you picked up Scubol late last year because you thought he was a great prospect, and then you bailed on him now because it wasn't you weren't seeing the improvement you wanted, you were missing stuff going on under the hood that that is hard to see and that maybe wasn't going to be noticed until the breakout came. And what that means is, if you drafted Nate Pearson, if you drafted, you know, Logan Gilbert's been struggling a bit, if you loved Alec Manoa's first start and are furious after his second start, like, these guys, they're not going to come up, I shouldn't say this, sometimes guys will come up and just be great. In general, that's not what's going to happen. They're going to come up, they're going to work through some stuff, they're going to figure some stuff out, and things might get worse before they get better in some cases. Right, it's not it's not a linear path, and so it, it's really important to like you know in keeper leagues in auto new leagues to think about how is your roster structured and how many spots do you have that you can dedicate and like do you have enough depth to sit on Nate Pearson for this entire season, knowing that this entire season might be awful, but that that doesn't necessarily change his future, and then do you have the you know what are you gonna do in the off season if this season is awful? Do you keep him? Do you wait? Do you get rid of him and hope you can buy back cheap again? Like it it's a really tough decision, but it pays off when it when you hit in the right guys. And I think there are probably managers out there who dropped Scooball sometime in April and are kicking themselves now.
1: I I was one of them and I was able to add him back. So I you know, just that one little piece of like relief for myself to throw that out into um into the atmosphere. But that's a, it, it's an awesome analysis. And it's it's such a great example of why you need to be patient with these young starting pitchers. And I would argue that if you are one of those teams rebuilding, maybe you're not targeting. Um, I don't know who's a hot pitching prospect at the moment. Maybe you're not targeting like Nick Lodolo, right? Like he's off to this amazing start um, in double A. Maybe instead you're targeting Mackenzie Gore. Maybe instead you're targeting Nate Pearson, because those guys why, why don't they have just as much upside, but right now their value is a little bit lower, not to turn this into another rebuilding conversation, but their value is definitely lower than where it was a year ago, even two years ago. And all it takes is are these changes that to us, yes, they're overnight, but to them are exhaustive, but it is their career. And all of a sudden they're a whole new pitcher. Um, so I'm more excited about Scooball uh, than I was before. Definitely check out Chad's piece. But... Invest in young starting pitching. Just make sure you're setting yourself up to have enough starting pitchers, where even if two or three of them fail, you're still you're still shaping up to look okay. Yeah, I
0: think that's exactly right. Is you need to have a couple of guys who are reliable, along with the upside. And the advantage of the upside is that you hopefully hit on guys that become reliable. Like my hope is that Scooball now pitches like this the rest of the year, and on that team where I have no pitching this year. Now I've got Gallon and Ryu, and I get to add Scooball to that, right? And I get to feel like he's reliable going into the next season. Um, and, and the reality is, reliable doesn't necessarily have to mean aces, right? You don't, you don't have to have. If we say go get three reliable starters or four reliable starters, you don't have to have Degrom, Bieber, and Cole. Those don't have to be your three reliable starters. It is great to have an ace up top, or even two aces up top. But there are plenty of guys who I think fall into that middle group where, you know, you talked before about Kikuchi. I think Jose Urquidy falls into that bat bucket for me. Aaron Savalli is not a bad option there. Of guys, um, Dallas Keuchel perhaps, of guys who like, they're not going to be aces. They're probably not going to carry your rotation. But you can plug them in. You can get good numbers out of them. You can feel good about starting them. And, like, it gives you a foundation and a baseline to to – Experiment around that—that that allows you to then find those breakouts because you need to find some of those breakouts somewhere. But if you don't have the—if you don't have a strong enough foundation to to weather the storm when those breakouts don't work, uh, it's all going to fall apart in a hurry.
1: So I think that that kicks an in interesting conversation regarding pitching about format because I w- I would agree with that, especially when it comes to standard points leagues, odd new points leagues. Like there's this middle class that. You can invest in them, especially this year, and, it, and it's going to look okay. And that allows you to, like you said, I like the word experiment with younger starting pitchers, right? My issue going into this season for rotisserie, for roto and head to head categories was that that middle class of pitching was disappearing. And I said at the beginning of the pod that I don't, I'm not ready to say I was wrong right now I look like I'm wrong okay and, I, and if, if you have been with us from the beginning you know that I'm very comfortable saying that I'm wrong like congratulations for all your Brendan Rodgers and Nick Senzel shares those are working out great for you good job listening to me but with that said I'm not ready to say I'm wrong on this one yet because like I said April May June the hitting numbers are going up the pitching numbers are going down and I think that middle class of starting pitching is beginning to, sh- to shy away a little bit is beginning to disappear again you know it's nice that we're getting this rich hill re-emergence it's cool that Savali is pretty much doing exactly what we expected him to do but I think those those middle class guys are going to begin to all of a sudden look a lot less appealing a lot less appetizing on our teams which is going to stress the need to have those higher end starting pitchers which is again, goes back to my point that you need to have, you need to invest in several of these in your long-term leagues. Like, don't look at it as like, yeah, you know what? Scherzer and Darvish, they'll be done soon, but I have Casey Mize. Okay. That's great. If Mize becomes an ace, otherwise you want to make sure you've got, uh, I don't know. What's the phrase eggs in many baskets. Is that, did I deconstruct that phrase well enough?
0: yes put all of your eggs in lots of different baskets yes yes you know? go to the basket
1: <laughs> store pick yourself up some baskets and start putting eggs in each of them
0: just one egg in each don't put more than one egg in each that would be too many
1: <laughs> yes so, no no Mox no, no, no. is actually
0: though mys is another good example of a guy who if you bought in on him early you you hopefully have stuck with him his overall line this year is starting to look better and better you know, last year it was it was ugly. Last year he had a six point nine nine ERA, a six point four seven FIP. Uh, his strikeout rate was down under twenty percent when he was walking almost ten percent of hitters. Like there was a lot of a lot of ugly there. And early on this year, like if I go back through four starts, so he started the season with Minnesota, Houston, Oakland, and Kansas City. And through those four starts, he had a 5.23 ERA, a 6.38 FIP. Since then, so I'm pulling up the numbers again, uh, he has a 2.45 ERA and a 3.93 FIP. So he's pitching a little over his head right now. He's got a 193 BAPIP over those last seven starts. Um, But he's been good. And really, if you go back sort of start by start and you look at his FIPs, his FIPs over those those seven starts, five of the seven are under four, three of the seven are under three, and only he's got one at 4.64. That's his second worst FIP over the last seven starts. His last start against Chicago, right? Tough team in a tough park. He gave up three home runs. He has a 6.99 FIP, but only a 3.92 X FIP, right? And so... You know he's been he's been so much better after seven bad starts last year I think it was and four bad starts to start this year. I, I'm not sure what's turned it around for him or if it's sustainable or if it's some. But if you bought in on Casey Mize, just like Scooball, maybe it's just Tigers pitchers. Maybe it's all the Tigers pitchers. So, you know, let's wait. Matt Manning will be up sometime soon. When he comes up, he'll probably have eleven to fifteen bad starts like they did, and then he's going to magically turn it around. Uh, that's probably not a good assumption for us to make, but the, p- <laughs> the point is that that's often the pattern. It's not an uncommon pattern for a pitcher to struggle and then find themselves or a hitter to struggle and then find themselves, right? We're, we're talking about pitchers right now, and I don't want to get off topic from that, but like, you know, Jared Kelnick right now has a 178 WOBA. He has a 14 WCR. Playlist. He had an over 35 stretch. Over for 35
1: right yeah i mean it's it is is he is he still on that or did he finally break out of that i don't i don't know i've benched him in most of my i'm not so notice i use the word bench do not drop jared kelnick not yet not yet so he has his last hit he had a two-hit game
0: against oakland on may 25th so may 25th he had two hits he went two for five he is he's a he is O for. I'm trying to figure out the math. I don't actually know what the numbers are because he's got 42 plate appearances, which is there we go. He's O for 37. Oh my god. O for 37. He has five walks over those 42 plate appearances. Oh. Uh, he's stolen two bases. Hey, we'll two take that. Two stolen bases in 10 games when you haven't gotten a single hit is that's something. <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, but the but the point is like that doesn't change. Who Jared Kelnick is. And it doesn't change the fact that a few weeks ago you looked at him and were like, this guy is maybe the best hitting prospect in baseball and his future is super bright and he's going to be a star. I still think all those things. Uh O for 35 is, or 0 for 37 is bad, but you can't you just can't expect these guys to show up and be stars overnight, and you can't expect there not to be growing pains, and you can't give up on them when there are growing
1: pains. You definitely can't, especially in these longer-term leagues. I mean, when I said don't drop Jared Kelnick yet, I'm actually talking redraft. Like, unless you need to, I'm, I'm not ready to drop him because I think once the pendulum swings in the other direction all of a sudden we're going to have a superstar in our hands, right? And that's not like some hot take. I think most people envision Jared Kelnick fitting that bill. And Chad, no matter what you say about Tigers pitchers, I will not invest in Jose Uriña, but I do think it is worth bringing up Matt Manning, who you mentioned earlier, because we've covered Mize and we've covered Scooball. And I just want to have a quick discussion about these three young starting pitchers that we definitely all look at pretty positively. Matt Manning has been horrible this year, um, particularly with with home runs, but he has had an atrocious season so far. His last two outings, uh, June third and May twenty eighth, he gave up six earned runs and three and a third against Louisville. This is at Triple A East, by the way, in Toledo, and he gave up seven earned runs against the Memphis Redbirds. So something, something's off with Manning at the moment. And, and if I remember correctly, he had to get shut down last year. So basically, where I'm going with this is, you know, we've been talking up why why don't react to small sample sizes? Don't overreact to this. Don't overreact to this. But has your ranking? of those three starting pitchers changed. Um, Because if you remember, we did a podcast earlier in the year um, where we talked about these three starting pitchers and, and we did rank them. And I think my order has completely flipped where before it was Manning, then Mize, then Scooball. And now I think it's Scooball, Mize, and Manning. And I can't tell if I'm overreacting to Manning's AAA or if I'm just enjoying what I'm seeing from Scooball and Mize. And so by default, I've just moved them up.
0: Yeah, I I think, and I'm trying to remember what what I said at that time, because I'm not sure I actually remember my ranking, because I think about these three very differently from each other. Manning has always felt risky to me. Big upside, but risky. Mize has always felt like the safest. Maybe not the most exciting. Probably, like, if those three all pan out, he is not going to be the ace of the staff. But he will be... The like number three starter that everyone's like that is a hell of a number three starter, and he goes out there every day and he's super solid and he's super reliable and like lots of teams would be happy to have him as their number one or number two, but he's he's their number three. I've liked Scooball like if I, if you go back and look at my teams, he's the one I rostered most often. But I think part of that was he was the easiest one to roster, right? He was the least expensive, he was the least sought after of the three, and so. I mean, maybe this maybe this goes to my my philosophy on pitching prospects in general. It's like I don't really trust myself to pick the best pitching prospect. So the one I want is the one that comes at the lowest cost because I think they're sort of all lottery tickets, anyways.
1: Um, but That's yeah, a I mean, really think, interesting strategy. Because if you I mean, if I you think did it with Alec Manoa, it worked out great, right?
0: No, and I think I mean sometimes it works out great, sometimes it doesn't, right? But I think if you look at like if you look at those three. And you said to me, you know, two years ago, which one of these guys is going to be best? I could, have, I could have told you which I thought it was going to be. I'm not even sure, like I said, looking back, what my answer would have been. I could have made a guess, but it would have been super low confidence. And if somebody had come back to me and you know, if someone came to 2019 Chad from the future and said, it is now 2030. And in 2030, we know for a fact that Scooble is the best of these three, or we know for a fact that Mize is the best of these three, or we know for a fact that Manning is the best of these three, none of those answers would have surprised me. Right, like, I like. Maybe I would have been like, "Oh, I wouldn't have expected Myers to be the best," but like, not in a like, I don't know, not in the way that if you went back to like the Mets prospects, pitching prospects a few years ago, and someone said, "We now know that Jacob DeGrom might be the best pitcher of all time," that would have <laughs> surprised me. I would have been like, "Jacob de who? Like, what are you talking about? You mean Matt Harvey, right? Right. That's exactly <laughs> right. Like, I think you've got the wrong guy." But no, I mean. <laughs> There are things, There are obviously things that surprise me plenty with pitching. But the point of that is, that like when I'm looking at pitching prospects, I, you know, I look at scouting reports and I get there are guys I'm more excited about rather than less. I'm a I'm a big Logan Gilbert fan. Uh, I like what the the Mariners have been doing, and I'm a big George Kirby fan. I have George Kirby in a bunch of places. Why do I have George Kirby in a bunch of places? He's just not as popular as the other pitching prospects. And since he's not as popular, and I feel like he's just as much of a pitching prospect because my, my error bars are so big, right? I'm so, like, there's such a wide range of outcomes for all these guys. That, like, I just don't have the desire to pay top dollar for top pitching prospects when I can pay lower dollar for lower pitching prospects. And like, I don't know, you look at the, the top pitchers in Major League Baseball today, and like, DeGrom wasn't an elite prospect. Bieber was not an elite prospect. He was like widely regarded in some circles, but he wasn't, you know, he wasn't a top 10 prospect or something like that. Garrett Cole was an elite prospect, right? I mean, you go like, there's all these like different directions you could go. There's plenty of top prospects who don't pan out, there's plenty of bottom prospects who do. And so, and and I think it's more true with pitching than it is with hitting. And because of that, when it comes to pitching, yeah, I'm, I'm more likely to just bet on the guy who costs me the, la- the least amount.
1: So my approach is definitely similar, but it's more. It's not necessarily with the, the prospects who are lower ranked, right? Like I'm not looking at the bottom half of the top 100 prospects and be like, all right, who's available? Who I can just get for a buck or, or add off free agency in my keeper league. But I'm looking at the pitchers who had all this hype, maybe a highly regarded prospect and then flopped. Right, and we were getting at this earlier with with Nate Pearson, and and it looks like right now Mackenzie Gore, maybe Matt Manning as well. Although I think that would be an overreaction to put them in the same category because Pearson struggled at the major league level. Um, but that's that's why you know I added or I I just traded for Garrett Crochet in that new league. Like those guys who maybe have struggled a little bit, and Crochet has his numbers aren't that great this year. Um, but they they've the the fatigue on them. That's the word I'm looking for. There's this prospect fatigue, and those are the guys I can swoop in and say, all right. And now I'm getting a guy who's like major league ready, who's got some experience, who still has as much potential as he had yesterday, as he had a year ago. It's just people aren't as excited about him anymore. Someone brought up a good point. I can't remember who it was, where they're comparing Alec Manoa to Tarek Skubal. And like all the hype is with Alec Manoa because he just got called up. But if Skubal got called up at the same exact time. We would probably be more excited about Tarek Skubal. <laughs> so there's this element of fatigue that I like to take advantage of. It doesn't always work out, right? Because some guys just stay bad, but sometimes it does. Um, and when it does, that's that's a nice boost to your to your roster, especially in those longer term leagues. Yeah, I think that's I think that's exactly right. And I think you know,
0: for me, I agree. It's not just looking at the back half of the the top hundred or something like that. I, I look at. I love those post hype guys. Those guys who have who have fallen, but are have still have the same potential. Uh, I'm also a big fan of command and control guys. I believe that if a guy can can hit their spots, they can often learn to add velocity and and fix their stuff and and grow from there. Um, and so, what I'm doing usually, if I'm looking at pitching prospects, is I'm I'm looking at scouting reports to find scouting reports of guys I like. And then having found those, then I go back and look at the, at what they're going to cost at a draft or an auction and go for the cheapest ones. Right. Here are seven pitching prospects I like. So it's not necessarily the guy who's, you know, number 89 on the top 100 list. It's just the guy who like, I really like based on what I'm reading about him, that isn't going to cost as much somewhere else. So that's sort of the, the path I take on pitching prospects and sometimes it works. Sometimes it, it doesn't, uh, it helps that as a Cleveland fan, I hear more about the Cleveland pitching prospects and others. And so lately that's worked out really well for me. <laughs> so,
1: like yes, for sure. I, was,
0: I was relatively early on Corey Kluber. I was relatively early on Shane Bieber, but like, I don't know if you can, I don't like, I, I don't know if there's any fantasy advice to be gleaned from. You should be the fan of a team that manages to develop multiple Cy Young winners in a short period of time.
1: Uh, it works, but I don't know that it's repeatable. <laughs> no, that's good advice. So, folks, if you're listening, you need to become an Indians fan, or I guess what's another team that could churn out. Uh, nobody really churns them out like the Indians. So, be an Indians oh. fan. Maybe the Astros. Maybe the Astros. Sure. Although with the sticky stuff going away, the Astros. Oh yeah. Oh boy. Some of their,
0: some of their methods are gonna be called into question. <laughs> I think so. Before we actually get to the auto new question of the day, actually, I think that's a last last thing. Are there any pitchers that you're? fading right now because of this sticky stuff crackdown
1: uh so the the two big ones that came to mind obviously are garrett cole and trevor bauer and in short i'm not fading them um i i still think garrett cole is going to be elite right like so there was that one start his most recent start where it looked like he got somewhat lit up um and it was the same day where where we got those tweets that they were cracking down and so look if we're gonna call, you know, call it straight here, like, sure, I bet Cole saw those and said, you know what, today's probably not the day to use my secret serum that I get from the backs of frogs. But his RPM was still up from from where it was, you know, pre-breakout with the Astros. So it was still it was still solid. I mean, he was still really good. He generated a lot of swings and misses. Like, I I think that's if you're looking to trade Garrett Cole or Trevor Bauer now, I think you're really overreacting. I do think it could have more of an impact on Bauer than it does on Cole, especially since he's so outspoken against the league. I wouldn't be surprised if there's like a, yeah, we're going to check his glove every time he goes out there like that. That just would, that's how the world works. That would not surprise me at all. But I'm still not ready to fade a guy who's like, I don't know, top three, top five so far this year, starting pitcher. I do think again, to kind of circle back to that middle class of starting pitchers, if this is as rampant as the league thinks it is, as, as some people think it is well, then we should maybe expect to see sort of a league-wide um, worsening, lessening in starting pitchers, like John Means, right? That clip of his his hand sticking to his glove the same year he's having a breakout, could it impact him? Sure, it could, but at this point, it's just conjecture. So to answer the question, no, I'm not fading anyone. I'm just sort of monitoring it, waiting for the shoe to drop and seeing you know, where, where the chips lie to see how many more cliche statements I can fit in there. I think that's right. I think, I mean... I
0: agree. Cole and Bauer are the names that come to mind. I think the thing with Cole and Bauer is that they, I think they're just, they're good pitchers. Before the season, I was pretty vocal that I didn't think Bauer was elite. I thought he was more like a top 20 guy than a top 10 guy, and it hasn't played out that way. I, I sort of wonder if, like, my, my rationale on that had been last year was such an outlier for him. And last year was such a weird year and things were really different. And he only faced the really weak central and like, let's see what happens under normal circumstances. I'm wondering if I should have added, he also started using the sticky stuff last year. And once they start cracking down, it'll go away. But like, I still stick to my feeling that last year was an outlier. And so we'll have to see if he can see what happens with him. But I think that if he falls off, like, I'm not cutting him. I might trade him if I got a really great value for him. But the reality is, I was fading him before the season, so I don't have any shares anyway. So
1: it's not going to do you me. You have any good. one. You have one where you're sharing a team with a
0: certain manager. Yeah, that's true. And that team, I don't think we can give up any pitching right now. So that's that's fine. We'll we'll live with that. But yeah, I mean, I think I think what'll be really interesting is when this happens. Will we see a handful of pitchers start to like? Will might. If it's, if it's as rampant as, you, as people think, my guess is that for most pitchers, it's a small impact. And then you're going to see a lot of cases where league-wide pitching gets a little bit worse. And for most pitchers, you'll be like, oh, there's like a little decline here. I can't really tell if that's anything. I'm wondering if there's going to be two or three pitchers who just like stand out. Like somebody's going to fall off a cliff when this happens, regardless of whether or not this is why. Right. There's always some pitcher who just is struggling at any given time. And so, some pitcher is on like June fifteenth, going to have a terrible start, and then going to have a bad start again on the twentieth. And people are going to start to be like, "What did happen to his RPM? Is he really, you know, is he really struggling because of this, or is it something else?" Do you think people are going to like overreact to that? You think we're going to see a bunch of cuts of like decent pitchers because of that?
1: I I hope not. I I don't expect to see that. I mean, look if 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 there's a if there's a quote middle class starting pitcher, because again, I I don't think this middle class is as big as it's currently. Showing to be, then sure, guys are going to start getting cut. But is it is it because people think this guy was cheating and now he can't anymore? I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, it, it, from what we've read, it looks like this is going to be a serious crackdown. So if there is some kind of linkage, like this player's performance went down, and the other day Joe West looked at his glove and he had to change his glove, like okay, well maybe now we'll start to see some drops. But unless there's a direct and clear correlation between the two, I don't I don't expect to see much of it.
0: Yeah, I it, I think that's probably right. I was trying to think if there's other guys that like I don't know, like James Kranchak struggled a little bit lately and there was a in and the White Sox broadcast in his was his not his most recent appearance but his second most recent appearance they noted some black stuff in his glove that he was going to uh a dark spot and like I think there are guys like that where if they're struggling and especially guys who may be a borderline value, right? Like a guy like Karinchak's obviously like been an elite reliever, but he isn't really a closer. It's hard to tell if he's a closer. He is and he isn't. If he really starts to struggle and this seems to be related, I don't know. We'll have to see. It's going to be really interesting to see how people respond to it. But we're coming up on the hour mark for the show. And you haven't even asked me your auto new question of the day. So we
1: need to get that out. What's yeah, let's let's get to it. So, it didn't at first have too much to do with our topic today, so but I am going to tie it to it because I think it's a particular player that fits into what I'm getting at here quite well. So anyway, let's say you've got, um, you're in contention, okay? You're a contender. You're not running away with a division at this point, but you're you're in the thick of it and you're looking to win the league this year. Um, and you have a stud who gets hurt. Now, again, this is aught new. This is not some keeper where it's like, obviously, you just stash him on the IL or whatever this particular player maybe you get the roster spot back right cuz you put him on the IL but he's still taking up a decent chunk of your spending money so let's say this player gets hurt you're right up against the cap maybe you've got like $1 free to spend on on free agents and even though he might he probably be back in time for our playoffs he's not going to help you for a while how likely are you to actually cut that stud or take pennies on the dollar to free up some space and to stay relevant to keep up in those standings or he just wait for them to return and the player I wanted to use as an example I was like oh man who can I use who can I use and I was like ah Corey Kluber it doesn't really work I think he's an easy cut Jack Flaherty let's say you got Jack Flaherty for an average salary I should have looked it up I'm just going to guess Jack Flaherty's average salary is $21 or something like that you'd know better than I would if if, he, if that's your option to free up space is that your move or what are you looking to do there that's a good
0: question. So Jack Flaherty's average salary is... You're pretty good. In Fangraph's points leagues, it's $21.87.
1: Oh, I swear I didn't $20 that
0: up. And 50 cents. <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, so in in that league where I'm, I'm rebuilding, I just traded for a $22 Jack Flaherty, and I'm very happy to have traded for him. I, I don't know. I mean, it's interesting. The, the trade I made was with a team that is in contention. That team is currently in, they're they're currently leading the league. So they're in first place in this league. When you look at it from sort of more like a rate perspective, they've got the second best hitting and the second best pitching um, on a points per game point per inning pitch basis, but the same team is ahead of them in those two categories. And so they're, they're in first place, but it's a, it's a tentative hold. And so, And that's not a head-to-head league. So there's not a, you know, Flaherty's not back for the playoffs. He'd be back to help late in the season, but not in sort of the outsized way that the playoffs matter. And his decision was that he should make the trade and that he should move on from Flaherty and try to strengthen his team while he can. The trade that we made uh, we traded him a five-dollar Framber Valdez for his twenty-two-dollar Flaherty. It's a pretty, I think, a pretty significant downgrade in his his pitching. But it's, you know, Framber at five dollars is very keepable, and should give him good numbers and at least some innings the rest of the way. We'll see. I, I, I mean, we'll see how that plays out for him. I think for me, it just depends so much on what's going on with the rest of my team. So if I'm in, if I'm in a fight for a playoff spot. But I think I can replace Flaherty's innings with something that's not going to make a huge difference. I'd probably rather just hold him, um, especially because Flaherty is a guy who, to me, that 22 twenty-one dollar average value—like he's a much more valuable pitcher than that. I think he's just his his salary is deflated a bit because he's still young. He sort of broke out, and so he's not. Most places where he's rostered, he's rostered by somebody who picked him up a couple of years ago really cheap, and he's still really cheap, and it's not a reflection of his market value. So from that perspective, I I don't really want to cut Flaherty. Now, if he were more expensive, like if he were at a point where his price were Thirty dollars, which is more in line with like a borderline keep or cut decision for the offseason with him. I'd be much more inclined to either just move on from him now, via trade or or via or or cut him and and just you know give up. So like if I'm looking at Flaherty, his last ten, the last ten leagues he was added, his price was thirty one seventy on average. That thirty dollars, like that's the thing with Flaherty is at twenty two dollars, he's so underpriced even though it's his average salary that he becomes a really good value at $24 next year. And it's really, it's hard to justify cutting him for the help this year and giving up that future value, especially when you expect him to come back and help you in the playoffs this year. Uh, I also think like, let's say he's gone. What, do we have a timeline on him yet?
1: It's they, just they that it's a right significant away. oblique strain. So, I mean, it's it's going to be a while.
0: So let's call it eight weeks. Sure something like that, eight weeks, eight matchups, you are going to get, let's call it 11 starts out of him over that time, 12 starts out of him over that time. If I think I can replace him with someone who is going to, instead of the 30 points a start, I expect from him, get me 20 points per start. That's 10 to 20 points lost per week. That's not great, but like that 10 or 20 points in and of itself shouldn't sink my season. Now if my team is falling apart and I am desperate for help, he may be the guy I choose to trade in order to get some help, right? And this year with injuries up as much as they are, there's an awful lot of teams that are in in desperate need of of something. Um and I think one of the things I'm struggling with in the league that you and I are both in, the my team there is very much in the playoff hunt. Um I have I have too many I have too many minor leaguers. I have too many injured players. um, And and I I need some help. But I look at all my injured guys, and it's like, I don't really know that I want to cut those guys. I think that they're all sort of interesting and valuable. And the reality is that you can't think of these decisions. And I think this is getting, this is going to try to wrap this up into a real answer for your question. You can't think of these decisions in a vacuum about a specific player. The question isn't, if Flaherty's down, do I go? Am I willing to cut him for cash or trade him in order to, you know, get help now? The real question is, how does that fit into the rest of my team? Who else is injured? Who else do I have not contributing? Who else could I potentially trade? Because um, I think the, the big question is, you know, do I need to make a move in order to make the playoffs, or is my my ability to make the playoffs? either good enough without him or not going to be impacted enough by a trade to justify something. And if I need to make a move, then the secondary question is, is Flaherty the right guy to move? And and I think the answer might be yes, but it depends what else is on your team and what else you can do.
1: That makes total sense. I mean, obviously you want to exhaust every option before getting rid of a player like Jack Flaherty. And, And within that, I thought there was a pretty good point that like Flaherty at $20, that might be the going rate but the going rate might actually just be a bargain because he's only going to get better. He's so young. He's so good. Um, Again, getting back to the question, I agree with you. I think a player like Jack Flaherty, I mean, we've spent so much of this episode talking about how volatile starting pitching is, how difficult it is to find reliable aces up top. If you have Jack Flaherty, you've found one. So you you do want to exhaust every opportunity to keep that player. Yeah, I think that's exactly right.
0: I think it's, you know, again when when i look at a team if i'm thinking that next year flarity is my my ace not even next year in august september and next year flarity's my ace even if i think i need help this year i'm he's not my first choice of the guy i would move but you know if i'm trying if i'm fighting for my playoff life and this is my only way in and he's the trade chip i can use that's going to get me what i need sometimes you got to bite the bullet and that's you know the reality is any trade you make that meaningfully helps your team is going to cost you something. Right? If it doesn't, then congratulations, you made a really lucky trade. <laughs> but assuming you're in a competitive league with with managers who know what they're doing and are gonna make life a little tough on you, it's gonna cost you. And I do think that, you know, in an auto-new league, like my first move is to usually trade my prospects because they're not contributing to anything now, anyways, plus they're highly volatile. My second move is to find guys at positions where I have depth. And so it's like, oh, I've got two good, cheap shortstops. I could trade one of them. Like that's easier to do. That's never the case for me at pitching, right? I never feel like, oh, I've got eight good, young, cheap aces, so I don't need all of them. Like that's never, like no matter how many good pitchers I have, I always think I could use more. So that's not usually the first place I go. And and an established stud like Flaherty. Just wouldn't be my first choice. But if it's trade Flaherty or miss the playoffs, I'll trade him. See you later, Flaherty. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you all for listening once again to the Keep or Cut podcast. Uh, don't forget to subscribe, leave ratings and reviews. You can also follow us at Keep or Cut on Twitter. That's Cut with a K. You can find me on Twitter at Chad Young. You can find Pete at Pete B Baseball. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. If you've got ideas for what you'd like to hear us cover, topics for future episodes, questions you'd like us to answer, anything else, let us know. Hope you enjoyed this episode and we will see you next week.